0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
1: Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
0: It's such an honor to present this next award.
1: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to...
0: And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me
2: right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
1: I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for our interview episode with David Canfield. Hello, David.
3: Hello. Uh,
1: David, what a joyous day for us both. What uh, a joyous <laughs> day. <laughs> you got to talk to Emma Thompson, um, star of Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, a somewhat surprise entrant into this year's Oscar race, as we've discussed already, but like who wouldn't relish the opportunity to talk to Emma Thompson? What did you guys talk about? We talked about everything.
3: Uh, we just, <laughs> We did talk about streaming quite a bit. You know, the movie is this very intimate theatrical two-hander um, in which she plays a teacher who hires a sex worker to have an orgasm because she's never had one before. And it's a really beautiful script, and it's just brilliantly performed by both her and Daryl McCormick, who plays the sex worker in question, um, about these two people getting to know each other both emotionally and sexually. And um, for Emma, in in the context of this movie— being on Hulu was kind of a special thing because it is so much about our private lives that, you know, mm. having it go into people's homes and talking to people about experiencing it in their homes was was special. And she made the art makes the argument in this interview that um why wouldn't that be worthy of consideration? Because it was the right mode for which this movie to be seen. It was released in cinemas internationally. We've of course <laughs> talked on this podcast about the, you know, evolving um eligibility guidelines here, but I think she makes a really compelling point.
1: Uh, that is a really lovely thought that had not occurred to me and in, in, in a lot of my talking about Good Luck to you, Leo Grant. And I think there's power in seeing something like that in a theater, um, which, you know, people around the world, I guess, got the chance to. Um, but that's a, a, it's a really nice way to put it. Of course she managed to put it in a really lovely way.
3: Uh, of course she did. <laughs> <laughs> we also talked a lot about uh, this coming from a first-time screenwriter. Her last, I think, really juicy film role was from... That was in Late Night, which was Mindy Kaling's first feature script, uh, and and talking a lot about wanting to elevate voices like that, and herself having a big screenwriting debut a long time ago. Said Sens- yeah. Sensibility brought her to the Oscars. Um, so there was a lot of full circle ness to the conversation as well.
1: Um, well, I can't wait to hear the rest of it. Let's hear your conversation with Emma Thompson.
3: Emma Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today to talk. Uh, good luck to you, Leo Grand, and your beautiful Hulu movie, <laughs> which has been newly designated uh, eligible for Oscar consideration. I thank wanted to start God. by Thank God. It deserves it. It deserves it. We on this podcast have been speaking for a long time about it deserving exactly that.
4: <laughs> That's so sweet of you. I,
3: I so it's so lovely. I mean, I didn't mind at all
4: cuz it's not sort of why we do it at all but um i think for the writer and and the director it's it is a wonderful thing having said that of course now we won't get nominated for anything at all and this (laughs) podcast will become a kind of famously sort of hubristic and kind of slightly slightly embarrassing thing that people will roll out you remember when she did that podcast on that thing called Little Gold <laughs> Men. And then the, the film was roundly ignored by every single award ceremony after that. <laughs> yes, well, that's what happens when you get too big for your boots. That's the <laughs> thing that happens
3: in this country. David. All, I'm just, all, all for naught, all for naught. Um, but we're here, so we may as well make the best of it, right?
4: Let's do it.
3: <laughs> Let's do it. Um, I, I did want to start with the streaming question because um, it's an interesting streaming-only movie in that... You are more, I'm going to say naked as an actor, I mean that figuratively for the most part, than you are typically. And you're really going straight into people's living rooms and homes. Did that feel like a vulnerable kind of experience for you? What was the? How did you observe the release of the movie from that perspective?
4: It was a very interesting journey, actually, for me, the, the release of the movie, because when we first saw it, we saw it in a tiny little screening room in Soho. And the pair of us sat there... And we, just, we had to hold on to each other all the way through. And then at the end, we couldn't really speak because it's been such a sort of intense experience. And, of, and actually, of course, in a way, a bizarre way, an extremely private experience that then became, you know, a public one. And I, I would say that that the most vulnerable I felt was in Berlin at the film festival in this massive cinema that was like a bloody football field. I mean, huge wraparound room where we were, you know, we were pretty large on screen. Um, And when they told me that it was going to stream, I thought, in a way, in America, there's I think more Puritanism about sex and sexual pleasure um, mm-hmm. even than there is here. And there's a lot here. And I thought maybe it's easier for people to see it in their in their homes. And I've spoken to so many people who've watched it in, in different ways. And they've said, you know, I, I prefer to watch it on my own. Um, I decided halfway through with my I was watching it with my husband, dad, whatever, to um actually stop for a minute and because it's very p- personal and it brings an awful lot of things up for people. And um so I thought it was a very it was a very good decision actually. I was I was also extremely glad that we opened it all around the world in cinemas, you know. But I I watch a lot of things that I can't get to in the cinema. And when I get to them on on the small screen or, you know, my telly, which is reasonably large, I'm very, very grateful to have had the chance to see them. And I I think that with Leo, which is a tiny movie, you know, a little independent movie, Mm -hmm. this was the best way of getting the most people to see something that's, after all, you know, about two people in a bedroom. It couldn't be more intimate and therefore sort of perhaps, in a sense, more appropriate for home viewing.
3: Hmm. And to the point about it being a, a small movie, a very, very dialogue-driven movie, um, it, it does make you wonder how a film should be considered, say, for an Oscar nomination, because this is the path it could take to find an audience. You know, as someone who's worked in film for a long time, who's been a part of big movies, small movies, everything in between – What did you make of the debate of whether you know it needed to be released in U.S. theaters to be considered, and you know, basically the state of independent movie because, increasingly, it is in a a streaming world.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of a little bit of all the debate that came around when video started. I'm old enough to remember that, you see. So, and everyone said it's going to kill cinema. It's going to kill cinema. Didn't kill cinema. Um, You know, cinema's going to kill theatre. Didn't kill theatre. Covid's going to kill theatre. Everyone's gone back to the theatre. We all get into a bit of a panic, I think, and I'm old enough to remember all of those panics and to know that actually, in the end, really great stories do find their way out a lot of the time. Um, But I'm not, I mean, I'm not underplaying the fact that I'll find something and suddenly go... God why didn't I see this at the time because everything's so under the the sort of huge tsunami of massive movies and if at the Cannes Film Festival you've got literally got fighter jets going over mm-hmm. the <laughs> fabric I go well look if we're not going to be supported by independent movie film festivals then that's something that's got to be taken responsibility for you know we can't we can't just put all our eggs into the baskets of these enormous great movies that um whatever happens they have to be formulaic otherwise they don't make the money back they have to meet the expectation and the expectation is very clearly laid out and whilst I love going to see big movies I really do enjoy it but I Independence of has always been, you know, where I've made mine really, and I don't know. We had this, we had a, we had this argument about the Marovitz stories with Noah Bambarch and, mm. and, and Noah was very upset about not being eligible because he the, the film had been streamed, and I, I understand that if you're a filmmaker, you know, you, you you've made something that's coming out of your heart and you want to see it on the big screen, and that's where you've designed it for. It's extremely upsetting to think of people watching it even on an aeroplane. You know, I understand that, I do. And I don't think there's any simple answer at all, I really don't. Um, but I did say to Noah at the time, so many more people will see it. And actually it's for story as well, isn't it? it's not just this kind of visual feast that we or what which is the reason we go to the cinema you know I mean I wouldn't have wanted, for instance, to watch dune on a t- telephone um, right. I went to the biggest cinema in London to see dune, and I just adored every second of it. I just loved it, loved the this you know the kind of massiveness of it and feeling like you're in a uh, you are really on a different planet. it was absolute heaven, but I know that you don't have to go to the a huge cinema to see leo. you don't have to at the same time it's a completely different experience because Sophie Hyde has rendered our faces and our bodies this this landscape it's that it's so interesting isn't it, how movies play differently in different shapes and sizes. And I'm, because I'm not a director, I, I don't perhaps feel as threatened, if you like, by something mm. like streaming. I, 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 I don't really. I, I know that I still love going to the cinema and people do absolutely go to the cinema. But, you know, particularly in America, when there's all those sort of loads and loads of places in America where they're just never they're not going to put this movie on and in our little village in Scotland our town in Scotland I went into the local cinema and said are you going to get this movie because it's going to be you, you have a wonderful time with it I think and they said no so I organized a screening which was full and then another screening where I was where I did a and a which was which was sort of like crammed but you know people don't they get out of the habit as well. And they also, I think, in small local places, um, they assume that the cinema won't be full and there'll be a place for them. So again, all of these questions are questions we have to ask the public. What is it they want? And if they want independent cinema, they have to go and see it. They have to go to the independent cinemas and support them. You can't just say, oh, you know, oh, independent cinema, oh, isn't it a shame, blah, blah. You have to actually go and support them by going to the independent cinemas and choosing them over the big complexes. So we have to make this happen ourselves. It's, It's a personal responsibility as well as you know, a philosophical discussion about art.
2: I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that?
0: Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large.
2: For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spillunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote.
0: Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina.
2: The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company.
3: making a movie like this for you as an actor, and what's so striking about your performance is that this character is so complete and complex and or ordinary to an extent. Um, and I I was thinking about, you know, some of your recent performances that I've really enjoyed, like Years and Years, Cruella, <laughs> Late Night, and these are all larger-than-life figures, and here you get a very different key to play, which I imagine was pretty exciting.
4: absolutely. The way I always put it when I was thinking about it is that she's the person who is always standing next to the person who's doing the interesting thing. Hmm. And suddenly she's the one doing the interesting thing. And you suddenly realise that this very ordinary woman who's lived a very ordinary, decent, useful, complex in all the normal human ways life, has suddenly decided to do something absolutely extraordinary, actually. Um, and, and, And really see it through, even though... It's like watching someone who's never done a bungee jump before, just moving yeah. just slowly, pace by pace, towards the edge of, of the cliff. And uh, playing her, Terror, was really one of the most <laughs> enjoyable things I've ever done because it was so funny. But at the same time, it was also so heartbreaking. So, oh. so heartbreaking. And, and the ordinariness of her her struggle with herself and her incapacity to think that she even deserved any pleasure. The fact that she'd never really asked herself that question before, but suddenly it it was something rising up inside her, you know, that she couldn't, she just couldn't suppress anymore. And I think that does happen with some people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You, I saw you mention rehearsing with Daryl, your co-star, for a day in the nude, um, which is, a, you, I would imagine a first time experience for you, um, and for him. What did that, you know, what did that give the two of you in terms of your chemistry in the movie? And also what was that experience like for you pre-filming, um, just in terms of being so vulnerable in that way?
4: Mm. Well, um, it was so, it was just, wonderful. I knew that we had to do it. I, mean, I i had done nudity before. I spent two delightful days nude with Jeff Goldblum when I was in my twenties. <laughs> we were both so nervous. It was in the tall guy and we were so nervous. We ha- we both had indigestion, I think, for two weeks beforehand. But once we got into it, we just had the best time. And actually that, that has always stood me in good stead because I always remember thinking, oh, it's okay. It's fine. It's all right. Um, as long as you're calm, everyone else is calm. And Sophie and me and Daryl, we'd all said, we have to take our kit off before the day. Otherwise, it'll just feel too pointed, if you'll pardon the unfortunate mm. expression. Um, and Sophie Hyde, our director, is absolutely wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, she's arranged it so that at the end of this five-day rehearsal period, which we really needed because we wanted to block it all out, we had so much to set up because we only had 19 days to shoot, the whole thing, which was a lot. I mean, it was a lot. We couldn't... We shot 12-page sections often, you know, so the the performance aspect of it was just so, so intense. So we needed to get as much under our belts, as it were, as possible. And so then the last day... She cleared the little rehearsal space, which had already become quite womb-like. And I jokingly said to Sophie, you know, you'll have to take your clothes off as well. And she said, oh, no, no, no I'm not going to do that. And then she <laughs> sort of thought about it. And then she said, oh, all right, then. So, so we, all, <laughs> we all took our clothes off sort of bit by bit. and we And each time we did, we said, this part of my body means this to me. And in this part of my body, I have felt these things. And in this part of my body, I've got this scar which came from this experience or I've got an internal scar or this is the bit that I like, this is the bit I don't like, I find this bit difficult. And so we talked our way through our bodies in that very... And it becomes normalised incredibly quickly because, of course... (laughs) We are but poor, bare-forked animals under our clothes, mm. all of us. So it's not like we're suddenly revealing, I don't know, um, an extra head. It's going to be normal, <laughs> whatever it is, you know. Um, and and then we did a very interesting exercise where we drew around our bodies on paper. And we oh, wow. And we mapped things in and, set, and the internal things and little bits and cross-hatched bits that we felt were important and... And and we also we also sort of touched each other's skin, because you know you have to feel the person that you're going to to have to be very close to physically. And I just remember, darling Daryl, who's an absolute. Glory, a glorious young man, and who's who's in his representation represent, of Leo. I just think, oh God, I hope every young man looks at this young man and thinks, I would like to be like him because mm. he's such a great role model. Anyway, <clears throat> he was looking at my hand, and he was moving the skin over the bones in my hand, and he said, "Yeah, you know, the the skin sort of moves; it moves quite easily over your bones." And I said, "Yeah, that, that's because the cells in my hand." Are what started forming about forty years before you were born. So that's why. <laughs> that, but it was so touching that he didn't know that the reason that that, that was happening on my hand was because I was so old, right. and and the skin is sixty is sixty three years old, you know, and his skin doesn't do that because it's twenty eight years old, and that mm. those kinds of experiences were very, very moving, and and it's of course it's a very te- it's very tender and we we've said a lot so it's I don't want to bore you but we've said that whenever people ask us about that last couple of days when we did have to strip off and yes do the sex scenes that it was just such bliss it was such mm. bliss because as well Nancy and Leo are happy they're enjoying themselves they're giving each other pleasure in an incredibly deep and intimate way, without it being romantic or indeed particularly complicated, and the, there was something incredibly releasing about that. And of course, there were no words <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. apart
4: from apart from a, my favourite ad lib of all time, which I didn't I didn't know what was going to happen, but when it made me laugh so much. But we, we got the biggest laugh from us every time. It was when she gets to the edge of the bed. So I can't balance here. I can't.
1: I can't <laughs> keep my here. You
4: know, and it's just such...
3: Oh, wow. That wasn't scripted.
4: Fun. Such fun.
3: Oh, wow. That's great. Um, just thinking about you guys exploring each other in that way, I know you've said this movie made you re-recognize, uh, you call it the waste of time of not accepting one's body. And mm. obviously a lot of comes with that as an actress who's been in this industry for a long time. Mm. Um, so did you come to a new kind of place in that process? Um, I would imagine there's a certain amount to unlearn just in making a movie like this, which counters a lot of what Hollywood tells, particularly women.
2: Mm-hmm,
4: oh yeah. You can't unlearn it because it's brainwashing. Yeah. It's, it's just, I've been brainwashed since I was very young and the brainwashing continues. I think it's worse actually now um, because it's continued on social media. So Absolutely. instead of people saying, We are now going to inhabit the world in our real selves, in our real forms. People are taking their forms and photoshopping them themselves. So Mm -hmm. everything that I was brought up with, which only happened in magazines, is now happening to people on people's phones. So that this notion of the ideal and the perfect, industrialized, banal and tedious, though it is, um, has been made even more other thing and thus we're looking at kids uh, as young as 8 saying oh, i don't like my thighs i don't like this be, you know anorexia hugely on the rise so it's something that i've fought against all my life but you know i can't i can't i can't fill in those runnels i just can't do it but i can i can try to be the change you know i can I can do that at least. I, I, at least I can be honest. And at least I can say, look, I accept this now. I accept this condition, my condition. I accept my body. I don't have to love it, um, but I accept it.
0: Hey, I'm Brian Zelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair.
3: You mentioned Sophie, your, your director, who makes a wonderful film here, um, but it's also Katie Brand's first feature script, uh, which is pretty remarkable. You starred in Mindy Kaling's first scripted feature as well, Late Night, yes. and you, of course, came out uh, with a bang yourself with your first scripted feature in Sense and Sensibility. Um, and it, it feels to me like there is a kind of nice full circle element there of of getting these really rich roles um, written by these women who mm. have said that they were inspired by you to some extent.
4: Oh yeah, I mean that's been just two of my favorite things ever, Mindy's script. You know, and and women I know I didn't know Mindy and she said oh, I've written this for you, and that's such an honor and a privilege. But the fact that added to the honor and privilege, it's a fucking great script and brilliantly <laughs> funny and great to play. It's one of my favorite jobs. And then also, with similarly, with Katie saying, Well, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure. i will never, I have a little look and I'm going, Katie, this is fantastic. We have to make it. That connection, that circular thing is just because that's sustainability in essence, isn't it? It's like you make something and then you make something for the next generation or you be you the thing and then the next generation says, Ah, oh, yes, okay, that's possible. I'll do that. That's sustainability. That's the sort of circle as you talk about. It's it's how mm-hmm. we feed each other. It's how we support each other. And um, and so I'm incredibly privileged to have had those those women write those pieces. And and you know they're things we've never seen before. We've right. never seen a late night talk show host. We've never seen a woman in search of an orgasm in that way exploring as well other entirely taboo subjects like motherhood and, you know, being a useful member of society. You know, she says, well, I could have done something else. Why do? Why did I do that? It might have been better if I hadn't. I might have had a better life. And whilst mm. uh, I'm not an individualist in the sense that I think that you know, having the best possible life for yourself is the most important thing in the world. I, don't, I believe that we are all connected and that we have to be... We're we, we sort of... We have to be cooperating all the time with each other. You know, we can't just go off and say, well, I'm going to do this and it doesn't matter about everybody else. I, I, don't, I don't adhere to that either. I think um, we're social animals. We belong in social groups and when we're in those groups we're in service, actually, to one another. And I think that's right, too. But there's a difference between the sort of baleful kind of suppressive and repressive effects of patriarchy on women, particularly on women's freedom, that have to be changed because they're not good for anybody. They're not good for anybody. And they're very much, I think, at the root of much of the violence against women and girls.
3: Hmm. For directors and screenwriters specifically do you see that changing at all um i spoke to Maggie Gyllenhaal last year about her directorial debut and she'd mentioned you saw an early cut of the film and you'd spoken about it um and she said that she just had no mental space to consider herself as a filmmaker even though she realized that's really what she's been all along
4: mm, no absolutely i mean that's what we talked about and her 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 presentation of the Hell and the torment of motherhood if it's not what actually you want to do was brilliant and of course it's Elena Ferrante as well who's also mm-hmm. represented female relationships with other females and with themselves so brilliantly in her all her run of Neapolitan novels uh, but Maggie and I have talked about this for years and years since we met on on Stranger Than Fiction and then she came and did My Nanny Wet Fee and so we've been mates for a long time and have have talked about all of this for a very long time. And actually one of the things that should be and I think is becoming part of a mainstream conversation is that you don't have to have babies to be a complete woman. You just don't have mm-hmm. to do it. And, and, and I think there's still a huge taboo about that, huge. And, of course, you know, then you become a mother and you realise that everything's your fault, Hmm. because everything's the mother's fault, everything. And in, in popular psychology, that's changing a bit. But certainly when psychology began, that was everything. And it was all written by men. And it was all very mm-hmm. bad science. And all of this stuff has to be unpacked, taken apart, and redefined, you know, re-explored. And all of these movies that we're talking about are doing that. And, and I find that quite hopeful, because if I, as a single person, have been sort of part of, three of those sort of journeys, either in actual person or in conversation, I feel that's quite, well, it's hopeful, isn't it?
3: Yeah, quite meaningful, I think.
4: Mm.
3: Yeah. yeah, to me, it's very meaningful, very meaningful. Yeah. The other side of that, I suppose, is, are there things that you you look at now and you say, I, I, I don't want to do that anymore? Or, you know, because we are talking about a collection of very interesting characters and films, um, and that isn't necessarily the journey that many actresses of a certain age get to have. So I'm curious how you've navigated that, particularly the past few years.
1: Well,
4: I I mean, I've never done anything I didn't actually really want to do, Mm -hmm. really. So that's been good. That's been useful because it means that you can trust your instincts in a way, or at least... Yeah. Um, but do you saying? what do you mean that that I don't want to do that anymore? What specifically do you mean by that? Uh,
3: just, I suppose, as these kinds of conversations have started up more, i um, thinking about what a movie's trying to say in a way that maybe you just hadn't thought of it. Like, say, the way Leo Grand talks about sexuality. Even for me watching that movie, it was extremely eye-opening, and it's not necessarily something that any movie had presented to me, so therefore I couldn't think of not doing the alternate, say, if that makes sense.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, what I think is there are certain stories we really do have to stop telling because I think they're quite damaging. Right. I think two of those are, um, well, one is, uh, and they lived happily ever after, that's just bullshit. And <laughs> And I think that romantic stories need to really start to, and again, you know, Noah did that brilliantly, I thought, in Marriage Story, you know, Mm. really exploring how something can be, become utterly destroyed and then something else can grow out of it that that's a kind of very good example of the destruction of and they live happily ever after because it yeah. represents you know that li- the first stages of love and then and then how terribly wrong that can go how how painful that happens to most people um in their lives at some point um and any good marriage actually involves death and rebirth and death and rebirth But we Mm -hmm. don't tell that story so everybody goes oh my god a death's come along i can't what can i I can't deal with it i'll move on um so that one the other story that we really need to stop telling is about one man saving the world this is just a very very dull story Mm. and um It just has to stop. It has to stop. I'm so bored. I'm so bored. And when I talk to my brilliant producer friend, Lindsay Duran, she does a talk about the female hero and, you know, what writers are told. And they're they're told the most extraordinary things now in this today. You know, they're told, well, you know, she can't cry. She can't cry because that's showing feminine weakness. So she's got to be badass. So all the female tropes now have to be like the men. And it, it, so you go, well, <laughs> hang on a yep, sec. Yeah, <laughs> the
3: <same> <laughs> there's a big gap here, yeah. <laughs> it's the
4: same story. We're not, we we have to go into the, the in-between bit and say, but what is this that we're representing? We're, we're just saying the same thing again and again. And actually, it occurred to me that the, the story about one man saving the world is in fact incredibly damaging because if you think that that's what you're supposed to do, then you're always going to be disappointed in yourself. You're never going to shake. You're never going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. We, we can't do that. None of us can do that. God knows we would like to. I would love it. Huh. I grew up identifying with all of those male heroes who saved the world in whatever way they did, whether it was in a, in a Texan town on a horse you know, whether it was in space or whatever. Um, but that's just, that story just has to go.
3: <laughs> yeah. I think Leo Grand is a good example of a movie that does the very opposite of that.
4: <laughs> yeah, it really does, because it undoes, it actually acknowledges in really genuine ways and authentic ways the complexity of the human condition. And we're not very good at, at, at recognizing how complicated we are. And if we were better at it um we'd be much calmer actually we're so anxious human beings are naturally anxious anyway Mm -hmm. but we don't recognize that either so so many of our stories are about how to be certain how to be certain and that's one of the most vulnerable places you can be
3: indeed all right emma where we are out of time but thank you so much this was really wonderful
1: oh thank you david that was so great to talk to you that does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at HWD. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and David.
3: David Canfield, 97.
1: Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fukes.
0: You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.